Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. The coronavirus pandemic and Brexit have changed the Wales we live in. There will be no future government in Wales which will not experience some form of emergency event due to our changing climate. And it is vital that any future government make sure that our recovery from COVID and Brexit has the environment at its heart. In the first of our pre-election portfolio pods, we place the environment front and centre. To talk all things environment with me and Kerry this evening, we have Liz Silversmith, who is the policy officer at Wales Environment Link and the coordinator of the Wales Environment Link manifesto. Hello, Liz. Hiya. Uh, we also have a returning guest and friend of the pond, Gemma Beer, who is the policy officer at Keep Wales Tidy. Hello, Gemma. Hello. Uh, and joining us as well is Alex Meredith, who works on large-scale renewable energy products and has recently completed research on the Swansea Tidal Lagoon, which will be published later this year. Hello, Alex. Good evening. Good evening, all. Um, so let's start by going a bit back in time. Devolution is now 20 years old. Uh, and what are your key take-homes on what we have achieved in Wales in those 20 years? Do you think we've delivered for the environment, Liz? Well, I think we've certainly delivered a lot of um, legislation around the environment, which is more than you can say in some areas. The Welsh Government in the last term, once it had um, proper primary lawmaking powers, we passed the Planning Act, the Environment Act and the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. But I do think that there is a slight, I mean, we have a wonderful, incredible um, set of natural resources in Wales. And I think there is sometimes um, a push and pull between how much we use and exploit them and how much we protect and revive and restore them. Um, and a lot of what Wales Environment Link has been working on is how we do that both post-Brexit and post-pandemic. I think we've we've come a really long way and I think we are doing better than um, England certainly um, and, and Scotland maybe in, in some cases as well. We've got the fourth highest household waste recycling rates in the world which is uh, really uh, you know a sort of massive success. We introduced the single use carrier bag charge levy, we were the first in the UK to do that. So we have had some wins but I think the, the scale and the pace hasn't been fast enough and I think it's, it's coming to a head now. Um, one of the most frustrating things I think about being an environmentalist and working in this sector is that we've, we've got the skills and the know-how. It's not that the solutions aren't there. Progress in this area is almost always down to political will. So we've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. There's been some really exciting successes. So few people know it, but the first commercial scale offshore wind farm was built in Wales in 2004. So we were, and I know this phrase is overused, uh, but world leaders. And whenever people talk about, you know, where Wales can really lead the way, we have led the way in offshore wind, which is now a global industry that is booming. And, and Wales has a part in that boom and was where it started. But I think the story, similar to the others, is that we've made good progress, good things have happened, but we haven't quite got into our stride and capitalised on all the opportunities that are, that are available. So... For example, despite kicking off the offshore wind industry in the UK, Welsh Government was less than enthusiastic about more offshore wind development in Wales. And, and there were difficulties in delivering projects after the initial phase. So and onshore wind, we've seen similar challenges and, you know, there are there is reticence. There hasn't been a full throated push towards sustainable development, which, let's remember, was in the original devolution settlement. But yeah, I, I agree with Liz that the powers and the, the legislation, the policy has taken probably 10 or 15 years to properly come through and, and provide that platform. Gemma, obviously we've got 
the election around the corner and this one should have the environment and climate change as one of its leading policy issues. What are you expecting to see from the parties? I hope that climate change and the climate crisis, um, as it has been um, officially called now, to to be front and centre. I hope that that's what we see from every single party. However, I, 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 I think it's, it's probably likely that it's going to take a little bit of a backseat because of the, the economic recovery from COVID. I would personally urge all parties to consider the economic and environmental progress as, as being utterly synonymous. You don't get one without the other. Um, it should be a green you know, recovery. That's how we, we kind of get back to um, a new normal or, you know, a, a kind of sustainable Wales. So I would hope to see it front and centre, but I wouldn't say I'm necessarily expecting it from all parties. Well, I think there's going to be a lot of good ideas, probably, um, you know, pictures in manifestos of, of wind turbines, possibly trees, I suspect. And that's all nice to see. But the reality is there is a challenge in Wales, because if you look at the Committee on Climate Change's last report for Wales, it identifies that the real majority of powers that can deliver net zero, which, let's be honest, is the real goal from a, a decarbonisation perspective, still sit with Westminster. A real, the vast majority of the powers that are required to deliver net zero sit with Westminster. So as much as the parties in Wales and Welsh election can offer, let's say, the, the right intentions and the right policies, in particularly around forestry and some of the areas which have evolved, for the big scale changes that our economy needs in Wales, they are going to have to work with Westminster. So actually, the thing that I most want to see is a, a spirit of collaboration around net zero and um, decarbonisation that that allows us in Wales to be a real front and centre part of that journey rather than becoming some kind of you know antagonistic conflict over how we go about this transition. Liz, you've got the uh, Environment Link Manifesto, so I'm sure you'd like to see that implemented in, in full, but what can you what do you think we're going to see? I mean, when it comes to so Wales Environment Link is, is a network of conservationists. I mean, it's a, a lot of varied members, but it's about the nature crisis over just as much as the climate crisis. And that's that's part of what we're trying to um, piece together is how do we take that really? And I completely agree on what Alex said in terms we need to have a UK approach on, on carbon. There is because of the national grid and because we share energy and because of the way the powers are reserved and not reserved, we absolutely have to have a shared ambition and I'm not a renewable energy expert, but I think in terms of how we spread our resources, we would clearly be better off doing that jointly with England and Scotland and Northern Ireland and, and making sure that we take advantage of, you know, tidal range and wind ranges and where it's solar. We, with, with renewables, you have to make sure that you try every natural resource really in a sustainable way. I think that's that's one of the key things that, that Wales Environment Link would, would want to see. We don't tend to work on renewable energy, but one of the things that we know is that doing a large scale development without smaller test pilots is very difficult for us to assess the conservation um, we absolutely need to see net zero we need to, but we also want to see attention given to carbon capture we want to see nature-based solutions the way that the way that flooding occurs every single year and we act surprised and it's because we haven't really addressed it in a, in a natural way we haven't flooding uh, natural flooding solutions are things like salt marshes and peatlands and the way our rivers are protected and the way that our seas and the way the coastal intercept happens by building concrete walls that's often the worst thing you can do because it lasts a few 
few years and then collapses. Another thing is we have to suddenly piece together, I say suddenly, four years later after Brexit, have to piece together a new UK-wide framework on what, what do we consider to be um, the big ticket things on how we not only reduce our carbon emissions and therefore abide by the UN Paris Agreement and to try and stop warming to beyond five degrees and make sure we deliver on all this renewables, but also we, we completely missed our targets in 2020 on biodiversity, our nature, it, it's dying, it's going extinct. And those are strong words, but it's a strong issue. And it's something that Extinction Rebellion have, have you know, really brought to the fore of the imagination. It's something the Welsh government seems to have embedded. They've even met with Extinction Rebellion. They take them seriously in a way that I think 10 Downing Street doesn't and Westminster doesn't. They try and involve them in how we can do it collaboratively. And that's a really different tone to how it sometimes happens in other countries. So I certainly expect carbon and climate to be front of centre. But the problem is that we economic crises and COVID crises and NHS crises will always trump the environment. And that's what we're saying about the green recovery. You need to put this embedded in everything, in farming, in marine, in anything you do in education, in the NHS, we need to make sure that the environment is a consideration, if not embedded in a way that we can all take action to not only make the most of nature, but to protect it and make sure it's still there for the next generation. You both mentioned the green recovery there, and uh, I had some questions further on around that. But as it's come up now, could could one of you just talk us through what is meant by a green recovery? Essentially, the, the Welsh government narrative has been on building back better and restoration and rebuild. And, and there's also been a little bit, because the report came a, a few weeks after the um, main Welsh government report, I, I fear that it's sometimes left, missed out. But there was also a couple of very good reports from Natural Resources Wales and Welsh government. It was commissioned by the Minister to Natural Resources Wales to say, how on earth do we deliver this green recovery? How do we take urgent action? How do we rebuild this differently? A lot of work is going on behind the scenes and it's feeding into ministerial work and, and some budget allocations and how you stabilise the sector. But what we actually mean when we talk about the green recovery is we mean whole scale change. We mean we can only talk about it in a whale sense. And, and as much as we'd like to talk about it in a UK sense, sometimes it's hard to figure out how much influence and how much the future of, of UK cooperation. We don't really know until um, the internal market bills pass as to how that relationship will work. But I think in Wales, the, the urgent things we need to do um, in this arena is we got to replace, we're still dealing with Brexit, we need to replace a common agricultural policy, we need to make sure farmers still exist and their farms and their rural income is sustained, but we also need to make sure that if we're going to do that, and if there's going to be basic payments paid by Welsh Government, that there's an absolute environmental standard. And what we've been calling for as um, as, as Wales Environment Link, or well, as, as we go by, is a public goods system, which, which Labour Government has promised and Plaid have said they are open-minded to, but are clearly more sensitive to it. And that, I think that will be one of the top environment concerns when we go into the, after the election. Completely um, agree with everything that, that Liz said there. I think the there's a, there's a danger of kind of separating, you know, when we talk about the green recovery and when politicians talk about the green recovery, it's a kind of an environmental add-on to what is fundamentally an economic strategy to, to replace jobs. Um, that's not the case. I think the, the green recovery has to be fundamentally intertwined with the social justice and equality agendas. It, and much of the foundational economy, especially when we talk about farming and fisheries and a lot of land management skills, um, links very much directly into the foundational economy. We've, we've probably reached maybe a kind of green recovery when, um, you know, Ken Skates, the economic and business portfolios, start talking about land management in the same way that the environment portfolios do. When we have, you know, a percentage of every single budget um, across Welsh Government feeding into environment and the climate and nature. 
And I think there's also, I wanted to say something a little bit about the kind of the, some of the, the language that we use. We use the words crisis, we use the words recovery, we use the words emergency. And there's a kind of, um, it's, it's kind of like, um, like a fire. It gives you the picture that, you know, once you've put out the fire, then, you know, you can all go home. You might have a bit of rebuilding to do. You might need to get on the phone to the insurance company, but, you know, the immediate danger has passed. That's not the case. You know, what we're talking about is a kind of a forever commitment, you know, like a marriage. We need a political kind of contract with nature and how we use the land. And we need that to be forever, a new, a new commitment from everybody, by everybody, in terms of how we use the land we use and, and what it's for and who it's, who it's for. And it should be for people and wildlife and the economy. And we can make that work. And that's broadly what we mean by, by a green recovery. And I think we'd also like to see it take, this, it sounds like a terrible phrase, but to take advantage of the pandemic and the silver lining of the fact that there is actually a moment of pause, there is a moment of clarity. A lot of these discussions over um, how we how we pro approach these things, like for example, transport and active travel seems the most obvious. The way we approach that, all of a sudden, this space has opened up, literal and 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 physical, and in you know in policy discussions that traffic isn't on the road right now, and our you know this. If we knew a pandemic was coming, I surely think that governments would have thought, well, maybe we should uh, redecide how we do our infrastructure while nobody's using it. I mean, there, there is a physical opportunity and there is a window of opportunity that will pass um, in a few years' time, and there will be a political decision to be made. And I do say it's political because it's about leadership. It's a it's a national, global, huge pandemic. It will be a political decision, and it will be up to voters to decide if they think this is a priority for them um, as to how do do we just try to go back to normal, or do we build back better? Do we put these systems in place? Place that actually embed a sustainable way of being. I think you know thinking about a green recovery sometimes and I think the points we made are really valid around um, the, the natural environment but I think we can also talk about a skills and innovation recovery that is focused upon potentially green and, and environmentally sustainable um, development so you know we have fantastic universities in Wales who are already doing a really interesting work to develop some of the the technology that is going to help us in this transition and you know if i was going to pitch one thing to any party or even welsh government i'd say invest heavily in our universities and higher education uh, and and obviously further down the education ladder but to try and get our you know researchers and our innovators and the companies that spin off those 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 uh, institutions to really lead some of the technological change that we need in the next 20 to 30 years because you know, there's a huge, I mean, we have a lot of the technology, we kind of understand it in a basic sense, but we can really supercharge innovation to make ourselves, you know, a, a really interesting economic part of that, that, um, that transition that we're trying to achieve. So I know that, that there are, there are brilliant, there's brilliant work already going on, but, you know, getting our universities and higher education sector completely focused, well, not completely unbiased, but um, on, on um, environmental change and decarbonisation, um, it, it could be a fantastic kicker for for the economy. We've been working with uh, with Well, and we also um, have a paper on green jobs for a, for a just recovery. Um, and there is yeah, there is a lot of room in Wales for that green innovation and for you know entirely kind of 
re-skilling the population to be to be geared up to to deliver a green recovery that is a very very long-term plan so it's it's not just um the universities and i completely uh, you know agree with what you're saying alex um it's it's everybody i mean it's it's school children we need to equip them with the the tools that are needed to to deal with the kind of the, the climate change crisis in the future it's it's young people it's further education colleges it's it's farmers it's politicians i dare say and one thing though just to add to perhaps a note of a little controversy into the mix is that we 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 do have to engage private capital in this journey you know and and quite substantial amounts so most estimates think that the investment needed would be well let's say the Committee on Climate Change is talking about three billion pounds a year by 2030, and most estimates say two thirds of that will come from private capital. You know, and and that that requires government and broader society to be comfortable with big companies investing heavily with a profit motive in the background, but to deliver skills, opportunities, jobs in Wales. And I think that's where perhaps the narrative and the tone around this transition has to be carefully judged because, you know, there's a, there's a desire to get there on all sides, but there's also different ways in which we can ensure that we get the right investments in Wales, where I think, you know, other parts of the UK have been more comfortable with that balance. And it has it's resulted in a lot of capital going to potentially other parts of the UK without real strong justification. But if politicians and and stakeholders in Wales can make sure they sound, you know, that they are open and, and willing to engage with private investment. I think that will that will be positive for us. One of, one of the things that you mentioned in a few of the responses now has been the internal market bill and the approach then to public goods that's going to emerge in the next session. What are the kind of key things you'd like to see in that kind of area? Because I think that'll be one of the big drivers in how we manage our land and some of the things you picked up on Liz you know is there anything you'd particularly like to see the next government really drive home in the public goods aspect? Well we first need to make sure that um, that we're politically sold on the public goods I think I think that mostly are I think um, I think I could imagine um, Plaid Cymru and, and a Welsh Labour government in some forms supply and demand working out a, a very interesting way forward and a certainly a quite um, an optimistic way forward as to how we make closer to home food systems more sustainable and how you know we we take advantage of the fact again that we have brexit as a reset perhaps a more a more disruptive reset even um, in some ways legislatively than anything else because in the next in the next term another thing and we don't want to see all of the talk on in the environment only be on this bill but the first thing we have to do is re- is, is, is passed an environmental governance bill. Um, and it's it's not very exciting to talk about, and it's not very, um, it hasn't got many opportunities on the forefront, but it's basically just replacing the EU directives that actually meant that if there was a, if there was a breach of a pollution incident, if someone polluted a river, or if someone um, chucked waste somewhere um, illegally, that there's actually a, an enforcement and fine and judicial aspect to all of that. Right now, we have nothing. Um, and that's quite terrifying in a way for, for the environment sector. It's quite terrifying that we don't actually know when we'll have a regulator um, to, to intervene. It, it before the election, we're, I think we're expecting to see an inbox and in, in some form of non-statutory uh, framework um, set up so that it can receive complaints. But if unless the next government managed to 
pursue that bill pretty quickly. Um, and not only would that bill, we're not, you know, the regulators just one, we'd also want to see principles like a precautionary principle or sustainable development principles, ways that overarch those things so that we can have that joined up approach. Because another thing we need to do is, is really look at how we can do renewables. And that's, that's something that the Welsh Government has put as a priority and how we can do renew, renewables in a most sustainably environmentally friendly way so that we're not exploiting natural resources. For example, offshore wind is, is, is fantastic and the tidal range is huge. The potential is amazing for renewables in Wales. But we also have one of the most diverse coastlines with the most sort of seals and porpoises and dolphins and different really delicate habitats that, that we also want to protect. And it's not, we talk about that sometimes in the sector, like it's impossible. It's, it's, it's very doable. It's incredibly doable. <laughs> um, it's, it usually requires, you know, some political will and some cooperation, but ultimately it's only in the last, um, well, so, let's say three to four years since the Wales Act 2017 passed that we even had powers over 350 megawatt developments. And I'm sure Alex knows much more about that than I do, but it's, I think that's really um, hindered the sector developing as much as it could have, because it's confusing to have different consenting regimes at different levels of governments, when actually, again, depending on how we legislate, it will depend on how the Welsh government decides to prioritise where they do renewables. And just to go back to your original question on, on what also the next Senate needs to needs to look at is that it needs to look at things like fuel poverty and making sure energy efficiency. And that's another thing, the great foundational skills economy potential for a post-recovery pandemic. We have a huge amount of housing stock that's massively inefficient. That's one of the quickest, simplest, easiest ways that you can reduce um, waste of you know carbon emissions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And just to follow up, I think Wales, through through the devolved powers, has the ability to manage marine licensing on on projects that is above that are above three hundred and fifty megawatts. So, you know, there's a huge influence there on developments, and to ensure, as Liz says, that they meet you know habitats and um, environmental criteria. The process of upskilling in Wales on that kind of issue is is ongoing, and it's it's getting faster, which is great to see. So, um, it's exciting. I mean. The, the Internal Markets Act sort of point is is interesting. You know, I think we have an opportunity to, you know, resist. And I think the government, the Welsh government, is, is doing its best to do that. Any attempt to dilute um, positive elements of Welsh legislative power, and I think you know, I, I would support that. The other element which is in there at the moment, which is really interesting and challenging, is this potential for the UK government to invest in infrastructure in Wales above over the head effectively of Welsh government and that question in the context of big scale infrastructure changes is going to be quite important um, in the in the near term if it goes ahead and so you know I've in the research we've been doing on Swansea Bay you know a lot of discussion amongst some of the stakeholders there that really if Welsh government was so keen on Westminster investing directly in economic development projects you know then they should allow these kind of powers to go ahead because for, for five years they asked very directly for investment to go into the Swansea Bay project, you know, but now there's a sense of, well, no, we don't want Westminster to decide infrastructure spending. We want to do it ourselves. But there's a, there's a balance that needs to be struck around the, the big balance sheet that Westminster offers to investment in Wales and the need to prioritise that in areas where Welsh government sees the right priorities. Um, that discourse, that discussion at the moment is, I think, quite quite abrasive, but it, for, for the benefit of Wales and infrastructure development in Wales, we need to see collaboration there and a better understanding for how we apply the right levels of spending from Westminster to Wales. 
Just a note on that, on, on the way you say that, yeah, we could be working together better on this. It's, it's something that I've been working with in Wales Environment Link on the, on the Shared Prosperity Fund. So this is the UK government pot of money that's supposed to replace EU structural funds. And they, they announced during the spending review in November that they're going to have some regional pilots. It's going to be about jobs and unemployment and all the usual stuff you'd expect from a general pot of funds and not sure what to do with. But we think it's a fantastic opportunity for, for potential. And, you know, one of the biggest things that unites the four UK nations is our borders and our land and our sea one of the best things we could do with that is to focus that you know we're talking about how we can create um, renewable skills and foundational skills and you know engineering skills to make sure we can we can get our infrastructure in that in that in that proper way wouldn't it be great if the share prosperity fund was something that actually was strategic and looked at the different skills and the different opportunities in the four nations and said right okay let's use this to make sure we've got an economy and a workforce that is ready to take on a you know post 2030 post petrol world um, where we actually perhaps do reduce our carbon um, you know and actually meet our carbon targets i think we need to also be a little bit more optimistic in some ways that working in this sector can be very can be very depressing because we just see lots of reports from scientists saying that we have less nature and we have more carbon emissions and the higher that curve goes up and the higher that curve goes down you know inevitably the less hope there is but that's not the case there's a lot of potential i, I mean i think that's right just to sort of follow up on that point quickly but the the funny thing is that if you look at the narrative that's coming out of westminster and the conservative government at the moment around investment in decarbonization it's very very strong and actually you know it's it's leading the conversation despite in some cases people would assume a conservative government would necessarily take that narrative forward but then the way in which the internal markets act conversation is being led in the welsh conservatives appears to be around the relief road and the ability to deliver a road building project and i think that you know so there is a question about if the narrative for the conservatives in westminster is all about offshore wind hydrogen upskilling leveling up you then shouldn't necessarily translate that into a road scheme which clearly doesn't align with the environmental objectives of of the of the westminster government we should remain positive, but I'm uh, I'm very sceptical about the internal markets bill. I think it uh, brings everyone down to the lowest common denominator. I don't think it's a positive bill. Um, I think the environment bill gives us powers, whilst the internal markets bill takes it away. And I think that historically, you know, throughout many years of, of Wales's history, the, the UK government um, has never been interested in, in investing in infrastructure in Wales. And I think that, you know, you've got the, the M4 relief road, which has been talked about, which is obviously not where the Welsh government wants to go. You know, you probably see, you know, Will Vanyoeth being reinvigorated. I, I would be very cynical that uh, the UK government would invest in, in the right places uh, where, it's, where it's needed. I'm, I'm hoping that the challenge is, is successful, that the, uh, all the devolved nations, I believe, are, are bringing against the UK government. I think we can do better. Um, I think that um, an internal markets bill, sh or act, sorry now, um, should be aspirational. It, it shouldn't bring everybody down. It should raise everybody up. Uh, that's what I'd like to see. And I think that's for the next government of Wales, um, that is going to be a, an absolutely massive issue. And coming back slightly onto the, the environment bill, which has been delayed for the third time, um, and the environmental governance structures that, that Liz was talking about, it's not just that we, we lack the compliance and the, the enforcement structures at the moment, it's the fact that the UK is hosting COP 
in autumn. And if we haven't got an environmental framework by autumn, we are in an international humiliation. You know, it's, it's embarrassing. There's that kind of, you know, soft political um, deadline as well for, for the next government to, to act extremely quickly. You, you've all mentioned tidal lagoons and Ulva uh, at some point in your answers, or, or at least one of them. Every, it seems every time the Wales gets a big energy project, it, it never really goes too far. Do you think that the tidal lagoon projects and the nuclear plant projects are, are dead, Alex? In a word, yes. But um, uh, firstly, let me challenge the assertion that we don't get the projects because uh, Gwintermoor, when it was built in 2015, was the second biggest offshore wind farm in the world. Um, but as I said earlier, there were, you know, there were aspects of that which weren't embraced, let's say, by Welsh government and, and, and perhaps uh, Wales more generally. But let's turn to Wilbur first. I mean, I think the cancellation of that project was, was, not, was not a surprise, but it is, it is a problem. Um, it's a problem not just for the very local factors around employment, skills, investment. It is a problem for our energy system um, if we get into the next 10 or 15 years without the sort of backup generation that the nuclear fleet can deliver. Now, there are solutions to that and there are options and alternatives, but those options and alternatives require very speedy development and deployment if they're going to replace the amount of nuclear that is about to come off the grid in the next 10 years. Now, Wilbur and nuclear generally is a very, very expensive and difficult choice to, to replace that. And I, and we've seen that it, it can't be delivered currently under the current policy regime. Um, so, you know, Westminster are going to have to gonna have a look at the way the policy is developed around nuclear and decide whether they want to change that balance to make that project viable. But currently, you know, it's not it's not going to happen. But, you know, as I say, that I think is a problem. As for, as for Swansea Bay, you know, the reality is that that opportunity for tidal lagoons is still there, uh, but the project itself is, I think, needs to be completely reworked and redesigned if it was going to be delivered, and that, that would take some years. Uh, but it does require, again, a different policy um, package. So the way in which the government had approached this with a kind of you know, cheapest solution only you know, market auction process doesn't suit lagoons, doesn't actually suit nuclear either. And it requires bespoke policy to understand what are the, you know, what are the what are the drivers, what are the support mechanisms that would make that work. But currently, within the policy framework that we have, it doesn't appear that lagoons will feature. And the Committee on Climate Change hasn't included lagoons in the, you know, in their projections of the future, but they have included nuclear. So to get to net zero, currently very difficult task would include nuclear on the basis of, of the Committee on Climate Change's um, projections. The Charles Hendry review in the UK government essentially said that there was a excellent opportunity for lagoons, um, but he recommended that the Swansea one be a pathfinder. And I think some of the issues arose in that the UK government was so pushing the value for money argument that they said, OK, we'll give us proposals for four to five more. And that's, um, well, you know, for a big new large scale multi-million and you know 10-year investment you can't just chuck them all over wales you need to you need to actually take these things seriously and make it a, a crux you know that could be an economic crux of of the whole swansea area it would transform the way that industry works and the way that um power was received around there um so i think yeah i could, i 
I could definitely see there could be a Swansea Pathfinder in future, but I think we'd have to be in a very different environment where um, where Welsh government had real autonomy over the sorts of projects. Because the thing is, they just don't have the financial levers. They do have borrowing powers now, but they don't have the same financial levers that the UK government has. And neither do they have, they have marine licensing powers um, and they have planning consent powers, but still the way the grid works and the way companies work here is that it's not necessarily geared towards creating this sort of product and making it work. What about Wilver, Liz? Well, I don't see it happening under Mark Drakeford because he's basically said that he doesn't really see it happening and doesn't want it to happen. Um, I find it quite interesting. I did see on Politic, Wales Politics Live the other day that they had um, an interview with Thlinos uh, Medi, who's the leader at Anglesey, I'm sorry, and a small council. And it's, they have the space and the infrastructure and the gap, but I don't think they necessarily want to see it be, they want to have a big energy infrastructure and they want to see an energy island, but does that have to be nuclear? I mean, there's again, another potential for tidal stuff there. I would caution that I'm not saying this remotely as Wales Environment Link, because you know we're actually quite concerned in areas where there is really valuable wildlife and marine wildlife um, and seabird migration paths. I mean, we've got birds only flying around certain types of year, but if, you know, if there's certain things in the way that change those things, we just, we want to do all the appraisals and all the careful precautionary work that you want to do, but it's kind of squished not only because of economic um, concerns, but also because we just, there's a, there's a certain sense of urgency and rapidity, like, and like Alex was saying, like these projects take a long time, a lagoon could take 10 years, we almost don't have that time, um, so we want to develop renewable technology, but there's also the argument, I suppose, that some would say we need to decarbonise in ways we already know how and with um, technologies we've already tested. I'm speaking personally, but I, um, I hope that Wilver Noeth is, is dead. I'm not a fan of nuclear energy. I, I don't think that's the... It's not a long-term solution. Um, it's a short-term solution. It's, it's not renewable, even if you can argue that it's, that it's clean. Um, and the argument for investing in nuclear power is economic. It's not environmental, I think, as, as I would see it. But I do hope that there's scope for, um, for a tidal lagoon and certainly tidal energy, scalable um, tidal energy projects all around Wales and, and indeed the UK. We've got to kind of, you know, if we, if we take a step back from the kind of the, the, the politics of it all, we are looking at a world which is in real crisis here. We're looking at, you know, extremely finite resources we are going to run out of oil. You know, we know that this kind of transition is 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 desperate, and it's and it's urgent, and it should have been done years and years ago. We could be 100% renewable energy by now. I don't know if anyone's read um, Naomi Klein's "This Changes Everything," but there was a report that she um, talks about in there, where um, a group of experts said that if the whole world wanted to convert to renewable energy, if they had the political will, it could be done in five years. Five years, that's the entire world. What we saw in this country, so not forgetting, obviously that the scalable projects are really, really important, but the community scale and the micro scale is equally important as well, especially for somewhere like Wales, where you've got a lot of houses which are off the grid um, anyway. And obviously David Cameron cutting off the, the feed-in tariffs has killed that industry. There's a lot of small scale um, hydro companies, for example, which have closed down and it's not acceptable. They were a fantastic incentive. They created jobs, they created clean energy, they created skills locally. 
And I think that's kind of um, the, the political noise kind of focuses on these on these really big projects. But, you know, in the meantime, all of those small scale stuff is, is are also kind of dying a death as well, which is extremely sad and, and really worrying. Can I just add something on about the, the projects, uh, particularly nuclear and, and tidal in that? The current framework is for the, them to be paid out of bills, um, effectively on um, the whole across the UK, the people are effectively paying for these projects by their electricity bill. And, you know, that does create a challenge when projects are more expensive, whether that be nuclear or, or, or lagoons. And the question I think people need to think about and policy makers need to think about is around, is that the right model for technologies that, you know, potentially are, uh, are good for decarbonisation, but we don't want to see people in fuel poverty made worse off as a result of the transition or for companies, particularly large um, industrial companies in Wales, to be turned off or, or in fact to leave um, because their energy, energy bills have increased substantially. So I think there is a question about that model um, for some technologies and that's what I mean about policy. And I think we're seeing this now that the UK government are a little bit more comfortable with interfering let's say in in markets and being a little bit more strategic about investments and that could be really positive you know and that that dynamic and that atmosphere could help realize projects in wales in a way that perhaps um, was more difficult in a pure um, market auction basis I'd completely agree with that, Alex. I'm on the board of a, a housing association in Wales, and the, the decarbonisation agenda in, of, of Wales is, is very largely focused on housing um, and decarbonisation in, in the housing sector, house building, but also energy efficiency. And I think housing associations um, in Wales um, and ourselves are quite worried about the cost that they're going to have to bear in order to deliver the decarbonisation agenda you know are they going to get funding for that or is that cost going to be put on tenants uh, I'm a tenant of a, a housing association as well so I maybe I should declare a, an interest I think that's one of the areas I want to touch on is how do we get the environment into the wider kind of portfolio mix so you know and often it, it's a siloed kind of approach from government. How do you think we can break that down and ensure the environment is, you know, a major aspect of all new policies coming through in the next session? I think in, in some ways um, it uh, depends on how the election goes and how the voters demand for it to, that to be front and centre. Um, I just wanted to bring up um, the fact that, of course, 16 and 17-year-olds can, can vote in whether this election happens in May or, or in the summer, but they, they will be able to vote. And the YouGov poll, um, I think it was last year, they said that 45% um, of 18 to 24-year-olds say that environmental issues are one of the nation's most pressing concerns, making it only second behind Brexit. So I think hopefully they will see that and people will be asking them questions on this but yeah the the, the unfortunate thing about um you know the climate emergencies is that a lot of it is about other portfolios stopping doing things or considering doing things differently and that's a very different ask to saying here's a pot of money can you do some green infrastructure on the roads that'd be great cheers hedges and edges lovely but that's not going to tackle the whole thing like it, it's great and i don't mean to criticize the way that ken skates or lee waters have been progressing this and lee waters particularly on the on the active travel front due to his background at sustrans has been very interesting it's about um you know saying that if if you're going to bail out 
out a business, maybe consider is it a sustainable business. Um, if you're going to bail out energy intensive industries, consider how you're going to get that energy. It's difficult conversations to have in, in, in certain portfolios. And certainly when it comes to housing and local government, the scale is huge from, from recycling to, you know, to fuel efficiency, to energy efficiency, to the way we build our housing, to the way we construct um, our cities and towns. I mean, do we make sure that people can all get the train in or do we make sure people can drive in? Those are all political decisions. I mean, one of the things we've got on our manifesto is um, to embed green prescriptions properly, because I think that's something we don't often talk about how the environment and the health portfolios come together. But to me, that's one of the most um, unfortunate opportunities not taken hold of yet. And we hope to be pushing on this more in the next term is the way that mental health services is, is very poor um, in the NHS. And it's not, it's not the NHS's fault. They, of course, a physical health providing organization. They have to put physical health first. But we think that the environment um, sector could have a role in creating these green prescriptions and making a, a sort of community and a society in which we prevent mental health um, becoming worse rather than only reach people at crisis point, pop them on prescription drugs and, you know, perhaps we can afford some form of a psychiatrist or GP, but that would be a really interesting area to embed. And we also want to see um, children in eco schools better embedded. We've got a new curriculum coming up. This is a fantastic opportunity to make sure that this new curriculum does things differently, does things perhaps like other European countries where they, they teach the citizen responsibility parts differently and teaching things like a GCSE in farming or natural environments. Something as simple as that to say to people, this is actually a possibility. You don't just have to go university and, and study this thing, you can actually learn some practical skills. We're talking about a national nature service and the way that we could perhaps use a citizenship element of making sure that people are given the opportunity, you know, it's a great time, um, a citizenship sort of argument in post-school, between school and college university times to learn some basic skills, to do some, some work with NGOs on restoring building fences, restoring fields, making sure that wildflower meadows are planted. It's, it's a great job if you can get it. Um, and uh, we, we're talking about investment in th those sorts of economies too. So I think it's it's not difficult to make it go across portfolio, but it is difficult for, for the government perhaps justify politically when the voters' immediate concerns are going to be, please stop flooding my house, please make sure I don't get COVID, please make sure that Brexit doesn't make all my food bills expensive. We've got to get to the point of how this actually affects people. And ultimately, politicians are there to make sure they get voted in next time or to make sure they satisfy the political will of, of having got there. So we have to make sure that people understand how this can benefit them, how they could, if there was more of a focus. I mean, Mark Drake has been a very interesting um, first minister and an incredible environmentalist in many ways. The way he denied the M4 relief road, not just on economic grounds or not just on devolution grounds. He, he rejected it on environmental grounds. It's sad that it takes until 2021 to get here, but it's a world leader that's actually, you know, a country leader that said, no, the wetlands are too important to build a big road. Um, this road isn't necessary as other ways we can do it. He started a commission and Lee Waters has been working on active travel and making sure that we actually do remote working hubs, something that England's been very quiet on. Do we want to go back to offices and cities and the way we commuted before and cars and trains and public transport? Or do we want remote working? And the Welsh government's been, been very good on that. They've got a consultation on remote working hubs right now. They don't want people to go back to the office. They want people to think about how they commute, to think about their carbon emissions, to think about how we can restructure and do things differently. I think there's a, you know, there's a concept in delivery and government of, of grip, gripping an issue and, and ensuring the public understand that it's being gripped and delivered. Although I, I, I recognise there, there have been some notable achievements, the, the question of whether Welsh Government has a grip of the, the green transition, the decarbonisation journey, the net zero journey is, I think, questionable. And the only way that I think you can deliver that kind of grip is by having the top level commitment 
absolutely front and centre with the First Minister delivering on this agenda personally. And I think we see that in, um, in Westminster in the way that, surprisingly, I think for a lot of people, the Conservative government in Westminster has transitioned towards a very front and centre delivery of the decarbonisation agenda as being the top level priority. That is, I think, necessary. So this this 10 point plan that Boris Johnson has issued may seem you know, a little bit you know, old hat. But actually, when you have the top politicians say, this is what I want, this is my agenda, and asking the government to deliver on it, that is helpful. So something like The problem that, with the 10-point plan is that it doesn't follow through on any of it. Well, you know, I mean, I think that's true. That The time will tell. I mean, we're, we're only a couple of months in, and we'll have to see whether we do see delivery. But, I mean, from my perspective, the energy white paper that's come out of Bay since that plan was released has 27 different consultations and uh, delivery processes that are now underway you know we will see whether it, it works but the reality is unless you have the top person saying this is what I want to achieve we will not get there and in Wales that requires the first minister to take a grip of this agenda and deliver it along a plan whether it's 10 points or five points or three points or however many points we want to see that's the only way I think that will be taken forward because it cuts across a lot of different issues and there's no point in trying to say that there's one minister with responsibility across those different portfolios. It has to be the first minister and they have to be utterly committed to it. Whether or not we, we get that in Westminster, we'll, we'll find out. But at least the top level commitment is, is there on paper so far. I, I, I totally agree with that. I think it, it's in order to make it embedded across government, you need the first minister to say you better embed this across government. I mean, that's that's ultimately a minister will has only so much you know capacity and budget to be able to do things. Um, I would say with with regards to yeah the energy stuff. I I mean I saw commitments from Leslie Griffiths on the renewables in the public sector, but it did sound a little you know, it's it's a target for the public sector because that's where they have the power. The the ambition and broad scope of it, it should be, well, how are we going to make sure that the private sector and third sector and all the other sectors are, are involved in this? You've got to bring people with you. You can't just sort out your own house and then expect everyone else to follow suit by best practice. Denying the M4 relief road does not um, does not fix the environment. It just means that the um, Newport wetlands are still a lovely place for people to visit and see wildlife and make sure that birds can actually use the um, the structures around there. But I think there's, there's been certain commitments like a national forest which um in terms of uh, environmentalist like national forest is fantastic it's on up there with the wales coastal path as a yes that is a 10 15 year plan that we can really center and use as hooks for conservation action and something you can get all councils around and the people around and that's not just a silo public sector thing but because of covid we haven't seen that progress or as with as much you know as much oomph as, as you'd expect who do you think in welsh government has a grip of the environmental agenda or the decarbonization agenda I think Leslie Griffiths has a, has a good grip of it, but I think it's too much for a Senate of 60 Senate members. I mean, I'm going off topic a little bit here, but I think the powers have come in the last few years. And unfortunately, an institutional memory takes time. I mean, that's it's irritating. But if we want to have enough Senate members that can actually hold government to the fire on this and say, OK, where's our climate change targets? Where's our nature targets? Where's our plan? How are we going to make this a priority? We need to think about how the Senate actually places as a priority. And we, we should be having the programme for government from Welsh government soon. So we'll certainly see what, what they think is a priority in the next year. I'd like to suggest that we technically already have the structure in order to, to embed it through the Future Generations Act. You know, I think I think I mentioned earlier that, you know, success, you know, for the environment and green recovery is uh, every single budget holder 
has the environment and prevention and, and long-term kind of sustainability principles as, as part of their, their budget that they, they have to ring fence for these kind of, you know, um, the environmental elements and the improvements and the, the green element, if you like, of, of whatever portfolio they hold. I, I actually think that this, this Welsh government um, and indeed a lot of the assembly is made up of quite a lot of individual members who are environmentalists. There are a lot of people in, in, the, in the government and in the assembly who, um, okay, they, they might not understand, you know, all of the ins and outs, um, you know, who does? <laughs> but they, they are certainly, you know, kind of committed to the environmental challenges. I think in Mark Drakeford, we've seen it for, the, for the, probably the first time in a first minister, um, and that has had an, a, a really positive impact, um, you know, so far in, in quite small ways. But, you know, he, he hasn't been in for, for that long. But I think if you gave the Future Generations Act legal teeth and us as the public or public bodies could present a legal challenge to any minister or to the government to say that they are not following those sustainable principles within the Future Generations Act, then they'd be a little bit more careful about where they spent their money and the decisions that they were making. And that would, that also kind of, it wouldn't solve everything, but it would prove to be a catalyst for embedding that culture which is necessary to collaborate on budget spending and decision making and make the government finally um, accountable. How do, how do we feel the Future Generations Act has gone in terms of delivering its objectives? You know, is the next assembly term really when it's going to come into its own? I think there's a question as to how that fits with the environmental governance bill because there's been um, there's been a task force that's produced a report on this in different ways that would have to amend our existing legislation to fit this around but the regulator and the way the future generation it has it has to be um, brought together in some way because otherwise it's not going to fit together and there's no point in having piecemeal legislation when we you know like Gemma says we already have that framework we already have the well-being goals what we you know we already have the carrots we don't have any stick to to actually enforce those well-being goals and make sure that I think there has been a public sector shift and we certainly see you know every Welsh government document framed around well-being goals and and that's that is a step in the right direction but. The Future Generations Commissioner, I don't think she necessarily should be a regulator, and that's going to be up to the Senate as to whether they have a commissioner function or a regulator function. A commissioner, you know, provides advice and political direction and reports and accountability, but a regulator really has to have the resource and the inspections and the actual um, independence behind it. You can't have a regulator that, that's close to, to Welsh Government, and by no means saying the Future Generations Office is, but if you're going to have a commissioner, do you then need a separate regulator? You can't just put it with natural resources Wales either they have enough to do they are a regulator but they only regulate on certain things um, and we also need to think about cross-border things England and Wales have a very porous border in, in perhaps the way that England and Scotland do not so we're much more likely if we're going to have a pollution incident um, you know down off as dyke and it's, it's come from an English farm but it's the Welsh impact or vice versa we're going to need to have a structure that deals with that so again not not very interesting things from environmental standpoint it's not drastically taking action on like nature or climate crises but it's it's that structure it's that regulation that will actually make it prominent and make it a priority and make it a way of working for every Welsh government no matter who's you know no matter which party's in power um if it's in in legislation and there's regulators already then we, we've already got that protection in for the long term one of the really nice things about the act is that you can communicate it to the public it's quite simple you can read the actual piece of legislation and it's really easy 
theoretically, if the Future Generations Act was, was working as it should, we would have no need for other legislation. We'd, you know, we'd have no need for this. We can just follow the Future Generations Act and go through those, those kind of principles. I like the fact that, that you know, the commissioner has felt like she can kind of take a stance on, on certain things. Um, I think they've produced some, some very interesting reports, but I do remember um, five years ago when it came in, I remember saying that it would take around a decade for, for this to be kind of culturally embedded in the public sector. And if, you know, for those of you who have worked in the public sector could have told me at the time that I was probably underestimating that a little bit. Um, so we're kind of halfway through that decade and it's talked about, but it's, it's far from being culturally embedded. If we could only give it teeth, if we gave it legal teeth, you would see you would you would see a change. You would see that cultural change very very quickly. In the same way that we all started recycling as soon as local authorities were threatened with fines when we you know um, if if they didn't meet them, putting putting teeth on things does change things. It does catalyze um, efforts, um, and I'd really like to see that in the next five years. You know, my perspective on this is it's too broad. It's too broad. It's too um, it's it's too unclear as to the focus. I mean, I think I personally, and I think everyone I know, supports the ambitions of the act. And you know, we see in the context of um, decarbonisation, the Committee on Climate Change hugely um, embrace the the principles and set out some um, agenda around those principles. It's great, but as a kind of as a, a piece of kind of fundamental action driving legislation it's too broad and I think what we actually need in Wales is a much more kind of focused effort at understanding the data that's around on the transition that we've got to go through understanding the the detailed policy challenges that arise from that data engaging with the public around the changes that we need to have that need to happen and the sort of more active element in the real sort of decision making frame rather than a sort of defensive you know framework which is which is therefore not necessarily going to drive change but is going to somehow i suppose give a a frame to that change you know we have a we have the biggest challenge you know humanity's ever faced ahead of us or at least we're in the middle of it and what we need is something with a bit more detail data driven um understanding of what we need to do next Alex, you mentioned earlier the pitch, one thing you put for the next administration, and you talked us through that. But do you want to just mention a little bit more, all three of you, what your kind of one big pitch would be for the next administration? I think for my sector, the thing that we need to address is connectivity and networks. That, that In the electricity context, that is absolutely critical. So, you know, I believe... Obviously, transmission networks are not devolved. We need action there to facilitate offshore wind and other big infrastructure. But on a distribution level, we also need to go very quickly towards implementing um, charging and grid reinforcements in communities across Wales so that they can see the benefits of heating and transport decarbonisation. Those issues are not moving anywhere near quickly enough. And if I can put in a pitch for wind again, if you put onshore wind in rural parts of Wales where it currently doesn't exist, you can get a deal going where developers are forced to invest in grid reinforcements that can benefit rural communities and help 
the, 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 the most rural communities be at the start of that decarbonisation journey for heat and transport um, in a way which you know hasn't happened for broadband, frankly. So we need to see big focus on the unsexy part of decarbonisation, which is the grids and networks. Uh, well, if you ask me for one pitch, I'm going <laughs> to, it's going to be difficult, but I, I think the two big things would be farming, like rural farmers need reassurance and support and also um, advice and guidance and reliability and some kind of aspects of predictability as to when our systems will change. And I think that the, there's already an agricultural white paper, um, Wales Environment Link thinks, thinks it's mostly very good um, and we're, we're very supportive of this. What, what we'd hate to see is for this to be lost in a very political argy-bargy when it's actually, this is about making sure that we're resilient after Brexit. This is making sure that um, we can still import and export without huge tariffs and that all comes back to trade deals and Brexit. I hope very much that well government ministers um, and whichever parties may support or not any form of government they take a mature um, leadership country in crisis kind, kind of mode of just like we need some form of reliability and we need to know what people are doing so the Welsh Labour said they'll do public goods and we're very supportive of public goods I mean it's essentially ways to make sure that our water quality air quality our land our peat our carbon all these things are sustainable and we want to pay farmers basically stewards of the land to not only do that but to restore and to make habitats for wildlife life and to make make sure that nature corridors are joined up it's a wonderful thing to be part of and we think it's also something that will help rejuvenate the rural community and that maybe get young entrants into the sector so it's not just older farms and trying to sell land on and trying to you know pass on and make sure that we keep up business as usual that we did pre-brexit we've got a great opportunity the common agriculture policy was not good for nature it basically rewarded people with lots of money and lots of land and produced lots of food and we know that economically the most profitable and sustainable farm you know not only sustainable but profitable is actually a small managed uh, set of cattle and a small managed set of fields which diverse and have different outputs. So the second thing I'd say is post-pandemic actually resets our traffic, resets our congestion, reset our roads. All of the work is going on there. There's a, there's a raft of fantastic reports from the South East Wales Transport Commission as well as the um, New Wales Transport Strategy um, is Sloibenua, the new path. There's really great ideas in there and I really hope that the next government take action on that too and actually embed them and, and put them into force with councils, not doing it to councils but with them. All of those things. Um, <laughs> I'd also say um, action in terms of, of climate change resilience, so, so actual actions, whether that's through funds or community, but also getting our environmental governance framework sorted so that we have regulation and compliance and uh, the challenge to the next government in Wales um, is getting that done before COP26 in autumn. So one last final question, and uh, I'll ask it to you all in your sort of personal capacities. As we're looking at a Senate election, what are your predictions for the result? Uh, my, my predictions are no more valuable than anyone else's, I should say, but they, um, I think the, the, the outlook is that Labour will continue uh, in charge in some form, um, with perhaps some support coming from somewhere, we shall see. But I think we shouldn't underestimate, and I think it's easy to underestimate, that the, the, the potential for the result which reflects increases in conservative support in Wales, which I think for the Twitterati and the, the you know the, the, those that don't wish to really think too deeply on the real thinking that's going on in Wales, um, that's quite a difficult thing to comprehend. But it, I think we should prepare for that. It seems to me that that's the way this is moving in the next few months. 
Well, if I was going to put a bet on it, I would say it would be Labour minority government for sure with either a Lib Dem or two. I doubt it, but I Lib Dem or two, um, or an implied supply and demand agreement. I mean, I've seen the articles come out on who would agree on coalitions and it's usual, they won't say before the election, but I think supply and demand agreement would apply for a couple of years in a minority Labour government. I'm going to be um, really optimistic um, and I'm going to say I still I think we'll, we'll see very much the same sort of shape and, and numbers in terms of Labour, but I'm going to be optimistic and say that I think we might see our first Green Party um, Assembly member, hopefully. I would second that. I think I think then we may see one come through because the reg the way the regional weighting is, we do have smaller parties. I I will say I don't think abolish the assembly are coming in, but I also say that optimistically. <laughs> <laughs> and on that optimistic note, thank you so much, all of you, for for coming on the show. If people want to find you on Twitter, where can they discover what you've got to say, Gemma? I'm at Gemma Beer. Um, that's Gemma with a J and then B E R B E R E. <laughs> Liz? Uh, I'm on Liz Silversmith, uh, all one word. And Alex? Uh, at Alex in Cardiff, because we're not allowed to go anywhere these days, so I'm always here. <laughs> At least it's good for your emissions. Yes, exactly. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Heroifblog Cymru, on Facebook at Heroifblog Cymru, and on Twitter at Heroifblog. Thank you for listening to Heroif. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.